The murder of a child. That would have to be one of the worst things a dad would ever have to deal with. But what if the murderer was a brother? This is what Adam had to face with his oldest son. And what's amazing is that the Heavenly Father took over the counseling. Turn to Genesis chapter 4 with our study leader Dave Wurtson and let's discover together how God handles a murdering older brother. How many of you dads want your kids to be raised in a nice, safe, protected environment? Don't you want your kids to have that? Yeah, how many of you grandfathers want that? Sure, that's what we all want, okay? That's what I thought we had here in Midlothian. I moved down here, and it was safe. They advertised all over the area. This is a rural, quiet, small town. And people started coming, man. They found out how great our town was. They started coming down from DeSoto. They came down from Duncanville. The old people that were born here said, please don't come down here. But they came anyway. At that time, we all had to go to Dallas to shop. Anybody remember those days? You just couldn't shop in Lothian. So we went to Dallas, and we were coming in Old Business 67. Most of you don't even know what Old Business 67 is, but it's the two-lane road that winds all the way through town because there wasn't any four-lane highway. Man, it was two lanes all the way up to so you got to Oak Cliff, all right? Those were the old days. I'll never forget coming back on a Saturday morning. I came up Old 67, I came by First National Bank, and suddenly there were mounted police everywhere. Now, I was raised in Manhattan, so I'd seen policemen on horsemen, but man, here they are. There were state troopers everywhere. There were squad cars from towns all over the place. There were helicopters flying overhead. Chief Vaughn was the chief of police, and I could see him running all over. The Texas Ranger that I also knew his brother really well, man, he was taking control of everything. Why? Because a 21-year-old George Rayfield Jr. had infiltrated our high school because drugs was rampant, and a lot of kids were getting involved in it. Chief Vaughn had been involved in the big city, and he didn't want our town to, to be swamped by that. And there was like a vacuum and it was easy to not have the enforcement. So our town became awash with drugs. And now I'll never forget, October 24th, 1987, they found George Rayfield's body just a few minutes south of the church in a field of wildflowers with a 38 caliber bullet in his head. Greg Knighton and one of the accused of doing it, they found him a couple of days. He was actually riding on a kind of a hay wagon, and they pulled him off. And Stowers wrote a book called Innocence Lost. And the basic idea was that Midlothian was this idyllic community. We all went to church, but it was all just big surface stuff. All we did was pious morality. We didn't deal with the really hard issues of drugs and anger and violence and immorality and all that stuff that really happens in real life. And Carlton Stower communicated an incredibly gifted writer, one of the best crime writers. He wrote a book called Innocence Lost. And the basic idea was that when that bullet punctured George Rayfield's head, that we lost our innocence. And as a dad, my oldest son was 14, my next son was 12, Chris Kyle was 13. And we as dads were all talking to our families about what you dads have been talking about. Because last Saturday night, right here in this auditorium, after our marriage retreat, we're all celebrating. And suddenly, my iPhone vibrated in my pocket. I picked it up. Pastor Lane needed the number of Chris Kyle's pastor. 
Demetrius that had done the couples conference and Lane are both police chaplains. So they were with Leanne and they're with Taya as they waited. Because when a terrible event happens like that, you're all waiting to find out what's the story. And all of you have learned something. That the story gets confused at first. Anybody notice that? And the facts get wrong. And there's all kinds of things happen, all kinds of speculation. And that's one thing you need to learn to do is let stories come to you. Learn not to make judgments. Learn not to make quick statements. But Demetrius and Lane were ministering to that family. And then we got the word. And so all this week, again, you dads and grandfathers taking the lead in your families have to talk to your little kids about murder. As I was in the line getting ready to, to comfort the Littlefield family that's so much a part of our culture for many, many years, I was with one of the counselors from the school that deals every day with the kids, all the kids involved. And as we were talking, you know, one of the things I said, everyone's been asking me all this, where is God when murder takes place? Anybody heard that question? Like, where is God when murder takes place? And we're really angry about that. It seems like God was absent, that God has disappeared. And what I want you to understand is, as I talk to you about learning to raise born-again kids, not good kids, not bad kids, but talk to you about how to raise forgiving kids, what we want to do this morning is I want to contradict what Stower said about our town and what he said about our churches. Because one of the things I want you to know that I'm committed to from the bottom of my heart as I open the word to you, I want everyone to be dads to know that the, the ultimate father in the heaven hasn't disappeared when a murder takes place. In fact, the very first son born to Adam was a murderer. And he didn't just murder a veteran that he was seeking to help, which is horrible, that Chris and Chad died like that, and our hearts are grieving, but this is really bad. This is an older son that rises up and murders his younger brother. And contrary to what a lot of your friends are going to say, well, God just disappears and he's distant from the earth, and every teenager, every little kid raised in our church, I want you to know something. I don't want you to get out of here thinking that when you become a police officer, when you become a fireman, when you become a school counselor, when you get involved in real life, or when you go away to the big city, that this idyllic little place called Midlothian, you didn't hear what God says about murder, what he says about what causes it. And I want every one of you dads, especially this morning, because I'm especially in this series, I want to get a hold of your dad. I want to tell you something. We're not just trying to produce good kids in this church. So I'm not just going to teach you Disneyland stuff Sunday morning. I want you to really listen to me. I'm committed to this. I believe that Genesis to Revelation is the greatest story ever told, and I don't think a lot of you know the story very well. I think a lot of you know little bits and pieces, and you pick and choose, and you eliminate a ton of the stuff that makes the story really real. And I want to illustrate that this morning because our town has gone through real stuff. A lot of you in this room, I look around. One of my precious young dads said, man, it's going to be hard to play baseball. I coach with Chris. It's going to be really hard. You're going to have kids asking a whole lot of things. So you need to really understand what does God say when a murder takes place? And the very first thing I want to understand that as God starts to tell the story about the firstborn on earth, Cain, He starts out, and everything's going to be a really good story. But what God starts to do is he tells every one of you dads, what are the characteristics of being on the serpent's side? 
hear what I just said? The Bible is really honest about what happens when you reject the Lord. Remember I told you the whole story of the Bible is going to be the serpent seed versus the seed of the woman. There's going to be those that follow the serpent, believe his lies, listen to what he says. They turn away from God. And then there's going to be those that choose, no, I'm going to believe in his promise. I'm going to believe he's going to send a great savior. God could have written a story where there's no murder, there's no violence, there's no immorality, homes don't blow apart, nothing ever bad happens, there's no storms that destroy life. God could have written a story like that, but he didn't. He didn't. God is writing a story that can fully face the agony of murder, and he starts out sharing with us what generates murder. This isn't what always generates murder, but the very firstborn son, God didn't tell us why Cain murdered his brother. And it begins with Cain and Abel being really good. I want you to notice, first of all, you've all read the text many times, Eve, where if you haven't, you can go back and read it. You just heard it read to you. Eve is really excited. How many of you moms are excited when your first kid is born? Any, any ladies excited about that? And she says, Cain, Cain. And it sounds like, in English, I can use the plain word, it sounds like gained. And she says this, I have produced, I've gained a child from the Lord. So who is Eve connected with? Eve was the one in chapter 3 that acted out the bad part. But she's now been covered. Her nakedness has been covered. She received the animal sacrifice that the Lord didn't even tell us about. But we know they're not clothed by the skin of animals. And when we begin chapter 4, Eve is back in touch with the great I am. How do I know that? Because she says, Yahweh, the great I am, which is the covenant name for God, the personal God that takes care of us, she's reconnected. She thinks her kid was born from God. In fact, she thinks she's generated the promised child. Don't you think that's a good start? Great start, isn't it? Really good start, okay? And she makes a big deal about it. He is her firstborn. She names him. And then the text, and you need to watch this. Then the text says an Abel was born also. Now, how many of you are second kids? My second boy is Joel. The second boy, like Jonathan, his brother, did all the talking, and he won the awards. I want you to know that Joel is just as smart as his older brother. He's just quiet. And all of his life, Jonathan and Joel were together. The second kid is often the one that's forgotten. So, Dad, I want to tell you something. Don't forget your second son because Joel's the one that calls me all the time to check up on me. So don't forget the second born. Isn't that real? Doesn't that sound real? That's what you guys are going to face. And they named Cain, which sounds like I've obtained a child. I've gained a child from the Lord. And Abel, you know what Abel sounds like in Hebrew? He's a vapor. Now, how many of you kids were like that every time your dad calls you, hey, vapor? Hey, fleeting wind. And he did. He didn't last very long on planet Earth. So everything starts out really good in this story. The very first thing I want you dads to think is all you're giving in your church family is at the con of a bloodless religion. Because that's what's going on in the text. It sounds really good. Cain brings his sacrifice. He has a really good job. He's an agriculture guy. So if you're in 4-H, I want you to know that God created us to till the ground. The culture that forgets that we're connected with the ground, we need to till the ground. That's what chapter 2 told you. God created Adam to till the ground. When we fall, it's really tough to produce stuff from the ground, but it's still a very noble profession. So in Milothian Bible Church, I don't want to hear anything downgrading 4-H kids. You hear me? We got the biggest agricultural program in all the state of Texas, and I'm proud of it. Why? Because my heavenly daddy said that's why we were created. 
And I've ministered to farmers and ranchers and shepherds all of my life. That's where a lot of my, my ministry has been. So Cain starts out really good, and I'd expect him to bring what he would produce from his farm. So he brings some plants. Abel is a shepherd. How many of you are say, I'm not into this farming stuff. I'm not into row farming. I'm into raising, as Texans are going to say, you're into raising, not sheep, but you're into raising cows. This is really what God is talking about. Abel is a shepherd. Then the text stresses, if you listen carefully, it says Cain just brought a gift. And that's the word that's used. It's like when Mary had her hip replaced, the elders got together on Wednesday night and said, hey, we need to get Mary something. And somebody yelled out, well, we get her flowers. And then somebody said, she's Dutch and has Dutch jeans in her. Man, she's not going to want flowers that we throw it away in a couple of days. We have to get something with roots. So Demetrius and Lane come to the hospital the next day, and they've got this beautiful plant that's blossoming everywhere. It was a plant with roots. That was a gift. Why did they do that? Because they want to make sure Mary's on their good side. No, they love Mary. But they also want to make sure they get her a good gift. And, and a lot of them have known Mary for 40 years now. So they know the way she thinks. So they got exactly the right gift that pleased her. By the way, some of our friends brought flowers. Praise God. She loved Dutch girls need to realize not all of life is plants. See how real God's word is? So Cain brings this present. But Abel brings a sacrificed lamb. And you don't know it when you're reading Genesis 4. But I want to whet your appetite. You men, I want you to learn to read this story. When you read about the firstborn, are firstborn sheep going to be important in God's story of redemption? Anybody have any ideas? Now, I want to show you what I want you to learn to do. I don't expect, don't be discouraged. I don't expect all of you to do this this morning. But if you're in our church very long, I want you to start to be able to do it. Abel doesn't know that God is going to write a whole story like a Passover story where they have to sacrifice a firstborn sheep and put the sheep blood on the door. He doesn't know that you're going to have whole chapters in Leviticus about sacrificing sheep and how you do it because without the shedding of blood, there isn't any forgiveness. He doesn't know that Isaiah is going to write a whole story about all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has laid on the ultimate sheep, the Lord Jesus the iniquity of us all, he doesn't know that when we come to John's gospel, that John the Baptist is going to look at his cousin and say, behold the Lamb of God that takes with us in the world. And he doesn't know that when Jesus is stretched out on Calvary, that's the very time that the Jews are sacrificing the Passover lamb. And Jesus is the ultimate Lamb of God that would shed his blood for our sins, which is what you just sang about, amen? That's how the redemptive story goes together. So God isn't down on Cain, because he didn't understand that. But I want all of you dads to realize, the story is telling it from the very beginning. A lot of you have the idea that religion is nice. And you ladies, I want to make it really clear. God isn't just giving a nice, beautiful, aesthetic, feel-good, happy time. From the beginning of time, lambs have had their throats slit. I want to tell you ladies something. Your little kids can handle that. Now, you notice the tech is really careful. It doesn't tell you, like, Mel Gibson doesn't give you technicolor pictures that are so beautiful of a lamb being sacrificed. It doesn't do that with the murder. You need to decide whether you want to join us in this, but little Israelite kids learned these stories. They didn't just learn these nice Bible stories that left out all the bad parts. And that's what some of you are trying to do. And you even get upset with me when I say, hey... 
This is the very first story in the Bible of the very first guy born. And man, it is a tough story. You understand me? And I'm just old enough. I've already raised Jonathan Joel. I've already talked to him about murder. And I've been talking all week long. And I want to raise a congregation that has dads and grandfathers especially that know reality. I don't want any policeman sitting here going, man, what you say on Sunday morning is really nice. He doesn't have the foggiest idea what to do. You should never say that again when I get through with this text. And I'm burdened about this. I want to raise up a church family more and more that lets God be our daddy. We raise our kids the way he wants us to raise them, and he's saying you need to teach them from the time they're little bitty kids where murder comes from. And the very first thing he says is, you got to teach your kids from the time they're small. It takes blood to forgive guilt of sin. It doesn't just go away. It takes blood, which is ultimately going to put into the blood of Jesus. From the time they're little kids, you're telling them that. You're training them that. Second of all, you need to teach them about anger and jealousy. How many of you dads have had your kids get angry and a little bit jealous this week? Did any of your kids ever get angry? The text tells us here that God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice. He's the firstborn son. He's been the apple of mama's eye. Everything is focused on him. And suddenly the God of the universe says, hey, I don't like your sacrifice. If you're a firstborn son and you're always the center of attention, when you're rejected, you get mad. So all of you dads, you need to teach your kids. From their time they're little. Remember I told you about H.A. and the Edwards family, Harvey and Janae's son? Remember what I told you what he does to Zeke? When Zeke gets a toy, he goes over and grabs the toy. Now all the counseling in the world, I can express, H.A., why do you feel that way? And we need to be understanding. There's much better toys you can play with. I got news for you. You can talk to H.A. to your blue in the face. He's going to still want the toy his brother has because he's a sinner. I fully understand. I read all the psych. I read psychiatrists. I know what your culture says. Your culture says our kids are really good little kids. If you just get out of the way, everything will be fine. I got news for you. They'll murder you when they're 18 and big enough. This is really serious stuff. I want all of you to think through. You can say, well, Dave, teach us the other story. I could do that this morning. I can tell you about how we're all really good and everything will be fine. It's just a bunch of baloney. The very first born on planet Earth was angry. How many of you ever been angry with God? You see, when you think God isn't accepting you, you get angry with him. And you're angry with him because you're jealous. You see someone else that's getting a better deal. And you need, as daddies, you're talking to your kids from the time they're little bitty kids. You're talking to them about the danger of anger, the danger of jealousy. Any of you dads ever been angry and jealous? We all have. So you teach them about the con of a bloodless religion. You teach them about the power of anger and jealousy. Then you also try to teach them how to resist temptation. So the God of the universe says, Cain, listen. Why are you upset? So you dads, you need to go after your kids when your kids are angry. When their face is downcast. When they're little guys. When they're teenagers. If you have a teenager that comes in and their eyes are looking down. When they won't look at you. And they're slamming doors. Don't just let that just go. Everything is fine. They're just normal kids. No. That leads to violence and murder against themselves and against other people. That's what God is telling you. The God of the universe is saying, I'm the ultimate daddy. So he goes after Cain. He says, Cain, why are you so hot? 
In Hebrew, they use the phrase like you get really hot. That doesn't sound like a good way to describe anger. And then the author says, why are you, your whole visage, your whole face is looking down. So I want you dads to go after your kids. Some of you dads aren't connected with your kids. You don't even know when they're angry. You don't even know when they're discouraged and they're despondent because they feel jealous and they feel they're getting a bad deal. God the Father is saying he's the ultimate God of the universe and he's going after this guy. And he says this, listen, it's not really a big deal. Just offer the right sacrifice. And if you offer the right sacrifice, God isn't saying, well, if you try to be good, that's a bad translation. And you need to follow the story. The good in this text is the right sacrifice. See, you always want to ask yourself, when it uses the word good, follow the story. What's the good in the story? The good in the story, the way the Hebrew text is developing here, is the sacrifice that Abel offered. That was the good thing. That was the right present for God. So all Cain had to do was go to his little brother and say, hey, I'm a farmer. I don't have a sheep. Please give me a sheep. Is that hard? It's so hard to do it. You're an older brother. Got to go to your younger brother and say, hey, I need one of your sheep. And then God says something really important. You need to teach all your kids. You know, if you don't deal with this, sin is right at the door like a roaring lion. Dads, there's an evil one that wants to murder your kids. And he wants to murder you. Remember in the Garden of Eden, he says, you won't surely die. God says, oh, yeah, you will. Because the serpent's always telling you you won't die. In the serpent side, we live in a world that really has serpent characteristics. And people get killed. And God is warning us, you need to deal with this. You need to get the right sacrifice. You need to be connected. For us as born-again believers, that means we connect with Jesus. And if we don't deal with that, sin's going to take us out. Could God have stopped Cain from killing his brother? Now, a lot of you have debates about Calvinism, everything's predestinated, and then a whole bunch of you fight back with Arminianism. I want you to learn to listen to the story. Because if you solve it, that God is the one that controls everything immediately, he's directly involved, then he's the one that murdered Abel because he could have prevented it. The Bible's much more complicated than that. On the other side of your whole, well, God doesn't know what he's doing, then you're going to lose it as well. The Bible actually tells a very intricate story. It's a story of redemptive grace. Do you realize if God stopped Cain from killing his brother and every single time you go to do something wrong, God stopped you, which is what you all think. As soon as something bad goes wrong, you say, well, God, it was your fault. Why didn't you stop me? So from the time they're little guys, you want to get angry? God doesn't just zap you with lightning. We'd all be toast. When Ruth last week took out an automatic pistol, God didn't stop. And it wasn't God's fault. It was my fault. And your fault. And our whole culture's fault. Because we're on a fallen race. Our culture doesn't believe that. But that's what God is saying. And the very first story in the Bible, God tried to reach a firstborn son and said, don't do this. But he didn't stop him. You know why? Because God is not writing a story just about the Garden of Eden, just about good guys. He's also not telling a story where everyone can just do what they want. Instead, he's telling an incredible story where he really deals with you this morning and me. And we're made in an image and we make really ch- real choices. And God deals with us. And you, Dad, I want you to know something. You're not going to be able to control your kids. It's not the Ruth's fault that he murdered two young men last week. When George Rayfield was killed, everywhere I went, Midlothian was a horrible town. Because the environment is what caught it. If you only get the right environment. 
We have just come out of the Garden of Eden. What better environment can you get? We got the very first son born. He's got God personally interacting with him, and he murders his brother. We got bad problems here. And our modern culture doesn't think we have bad problems. But you know what? It is really getting bad because the story of Chad and Chris being murdered, when I turned on the news last night, it was almost lost. If it wasn't for the fact that we're having a great big funeral at Cowboy Stadium, it would have been lost. You know why? Because there were so many other murders in Dallas this week. Because our culture is following the line of Cain. And God is exposing it. So Cain goes out, takes his brother to the field, just like they took George Rayfield out. And he rose up, and the firstborn son killed his little brother. Now, what does God do then? What does God do when murder takes place? He comes after you. God's going to be after Ruth. He's there to comfort those, but he's also there to confront. And he says to Cain, where's your brother? Just like he asked Adam and Eve, where are you guys? And you know what? There's a whole bunch of you guys. Your, your kids are wandering all over the place. You never ask them, where are you? You're passive. And I want you to stop doing that. If you're going to father like God, you need to go after your kids when they've messed up. And you need to stop protecting them and stop defending them or stop ignoring. The worst thing in the world is a whole lot of you are just ignoring your kids. And it starts when they're little bitty guys. You can't come in from work and having an older brother beating up on little brother and you just sit there and say, honey, you got to deal with this. Don't you realize I'm working? You can't do that. And when they get in a fist fight with their little brother and they just might knock their head off, you got to get in there. Where are you? You do it when they're little, and you start telling them, you know, I wrestle with an anger too. And we've got an answer that can really face that anger. We don't just cover it up, but we've got an answer that can really change us on the inside. So God comes after Cain. He says, Cain, where are you? Notice what Cain says. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I want all of you to answer the question. Are you your brother's keeper? Everybody tell me, are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And our culture doesn't believe it anymore. A whole bunch of kids will tell me, I know kids that are doing things that will destroy them. That's their business. If they want to do that, that's fine. That's our ethic today. You're not your brother's keeper. You just do your own thing. What everyone, in fact, we also believe we can make up reality just by what we think. We don't have to take care of anyone else. I got news for you. In our body of Christ, we need to realize we're all connected. We're all brothers and sisters. We are connected. The answer to Cain's question is, man, you've lost family. You've lost community. You know what God says? God says, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And you need to teach your kids from the time they're very small the principle of retributive justice, retributive justice. You know what that is? You spill your brother's blood on the ground, then the ground that you spill the blood on doesn't produce any crops anymore for you. You see, God doesn't just start out wiping Cain out. Like, a lot of you think God's really mean. In fact, a lot of my unbelieving friends think God just judges people arbitrarily. They haven't read the story. Here's the very first murder. What did some of you want to do to the man that took your friend's life, Chad and Chris? What did some of you men want to do? I'm going to take them out. That's justice. And that's not an unholy thing. When a life is taken and you lose your best friend, when you lose a husband, one of the angry things that rises up it's justice. Now, the story that I'm going to say, be careful, 
You need to let God have the justice. And I'll talk to you more about that in just a minute. But I want you to understand that the God of the Bible goes after Cain and he says, the ground that you have served all your life is not going to produce for you anymore. And he also says you're going to be a wanderer. And you dads need to teach your kids from your very small. And I want every one of our kids to understand, if you move away from God, if you move away from Jesus, you're going to wander. Because the second thing you need to say that a lot of our Christian kids don't understand is that in the line of the serpent, there is great agriculture. So you can go to Texas A&M University and you can be in a class. And I'm not saying that they're not boarding in people down there, but you can study with some really first-class agricultural engineers that don't believe in Jesus at all, and they can teach you to be an incredible farmer. Some of you kids are going to do your instruments. And you're going to go to New York City. Like my brother Don is here this morning. You talk to him afterwards. He's recorded with the very best musicians in the world at L.A., at New York, and London. You know what? Hardly anybody in his orchestra was a born-again believer. Is that right, Don? Hardly anybody in his orchestra knew Jesus. So I want all of you kids to understand, when you leave Midlothian Bible Church and you go to university, you go to the city, you need to realize that out there in the unbelieving world, there can be great agriculture, there can be incredible music, and there also can be incredible technology. Like, remember it said, Tubal-Cain produced metallurgy? God is so gracious and so kind. Even unbelieving people produce civilization. They produce culture. They produce beautiful things, beautiful music, beautiful buildings. That's what God said from the very beginning. But we also need to tell our kids something else. Underneath all of those cities and all of that music and all that hoopla, they're wandering. They're restless. And they never find rest for their soul. The other thing I want to understand is, remember we read about Lamech? It says right here in the text that Lamech had two women, Bilkah and Milcah, and this is the very first time we have bigamy presented in the Bible. How many women did God give to Adam? How many? Tell me real loud. How many did he give? Okay, did he give another man for Adam? Did he give another woman for Eve? So you're going to have to decide. I can teach you the other way. And I don't care who votes on it. My heavenly daddy, when he created marriage, didn't give men another man. And you can do all the backward somersaults biologic in the world, and you can tell everybody that you generated a kid by being together with another man. You didn't. And I could go to prison someday for saying that. But it's still the truth. And the idea, well, I was born this way. I was born heterosexually like Lamech. When I played quarterback in high school and the cheerleaders were cheering, man, I wanted all four of them. (laughs) On the dark side of me. When I watch the Super Bowl, there's a side of me that wants the whole halftime show. And so do you men. Come on, you're so pious. We're like Lamech, unless a miracle takes place in our life. That's what this text is saying. This text is really honest. He treats women as an ornament. That's the way some of you dads are treating women. But your little boys need to be taught from the time that you're little bitty guys. It's not just what's on the outside. It's on the inside. And we're looking for one. Did you hear what I just said? You daddies need to be teaching your boys from the time they're little. And you moms need to be teaching your kids from the time they're little. You're looking for one man and one woman. And that's a good story. By God's grace, I never went with the four. 
And the Lord did all kinds of things to bring a woman into my life, one. And even when she had all that hospital gown and the physical therapist was winding her out, he says, man, alive, you know, you, you couldn't possibly be this old. You're, you're only 40 years old. Because my wife, even without any makeup, was still gorgeous in recovery. Now, that's really saying something. Because I've seen some of you without your makeup. <laughs> I'm kidding you. I'm kidding. What I'm just telling you, I'm a husband. When I was 18, the great I am said, this is the one. And I am so glad I had a daddy that said, live for the one. Men, will you do that? You're filled with grace in our church. You might have been married three or four times, and the one that the Lord has you with now in this period of redemptive grace, this is the one now for you. You can tell the story that I'm telling you. Amen? I don't want any of you to feel rejected. Your heavenly father enters in and just keep reading the Bible. He tells all kinds of stories that include you. But it means you become really passionate against Lamech. Lamech also is a very violent man. I want to warn you. Some of you young men in our church, you're trying to protect your family by vengeance. You're like Lamech. You say, man, Lamech, a young man attacked me. Lamech took him out. And Lamech said, anyone that messes with me at all, I'm going to take him out seven times seven. So some of you have your houses filled with AK-47. And you think you're going to protect yourself and your family with your AK-47. You should learn something this week. The best sniper in United States history couldn't protect himself from murder. Did you hear what I just said? Now, I love guns, and I love target pregnant and all that. I just want, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't protect your family. I'm just saying you need to watch out for vengeance. Some of you men are angry, and you're vengeful. That's a seed of the serpent. And you know what it's going to lead to? Next week, we're going to talk about the flood. It leads to violence increasing. It means that all of us are going to have guns. And the days of the Wild West are going to be back. Is that what you really want as a believing man, man? Is that what you want? We close, there's another thing that great redemptive dads do. It says Adam knew his wife again, and he gave birth to Seth, and Seth produced Enosh. And Sam didn't even read it, so you've all been in suspense. And at that time, men called on the name of the Lord. And what it's saying in that text, it says at that time, in the flow of the story, Enosh said, I'm in a line that believes in the great serpent slayer that's going to come. And I'm in a line that's trusting in the great I am to provide a great male child. I don't think I can beat the serpent. Cain couldn't beat him. I'm not going to be able to. But I call in the name of the Lord to help me. And I proclaim to others they will help me. You know, as I close, I've got a special challenge for you men. I've got a challenge for you as men. This is very real, okay? Chad and Chris aren't with their families anymore. For now, for a brief period. And pastors do their funerals. And I do this all the time. If it happened to you as a young man, I'm going to be with your wife and with your kids. I'm going to tell them what I'm going to ask. We're going to comfort them. We're going to pray with them. Then I'm going to ask them this. I've got to do their funeral. I want to ask you, when did your husband, when did your daddy come to know Jesus as their Savior? Did you hear what I just said? I want every dad to listen to me and every grandfather. If you're gone... I'm going to have to ask your wife and kids, when did daddy, when did your husband come to know Jesus? I'm not asking you to know the exact date. And then I'm going to ask them, what did they believe about Jesus? What did they believe about his death? 
What do they believe about his resurrection? I put these questions here. It says, if you have had a conversion experience where you chose to believe in Jesus, become part of the seed of the woman, I want you to describe it. I'd like you to write it down on a sheet of paper and describe it. At the time, what did you understand about Jesus? What did you understand about the meaning of his death on the cross and about the meaning of his resurrection for you personally as a man? What moved you to depend upon Jesus for eternal salvation? How did you hear the gospel? Did your father play a part, a role in leading you to Christ? I want you to write down your answers and then share with your wife and kids so that everyone in your family understands how to be born again into Christ's family. And they all know how their dad did this. I look at this audience. I have some adult sons that I'm really close to, and they don't know how their dad came to know Jesus. Men, look at me. Will you do that? If you don't like writing things out, will you record it? And what I want to be happening in the next several weeks, I want us to be sharing together, hey, like maybe tonight, tonight as you're eating supper, some of you dead will say, I'm ready. Gather all your family together in the living room and say, hey, this is how daddy received Jesus. I was five. My own dad was preaching at a summer camp, and he did what he did. Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again. And a little five-year-old kid in the side wing of a Jewish theater, my dad presented the gospel. He didn't even know it. But the little five-year-old kid, his son, I said, Jesus, come into my life. My son Joel was just two and a half, three years old, sitting at the breakfast table. Suddenly he started crying. Remember I told you about my Abel, my second boy? Joel started crying, and his mama saw him crying. And he said, I'm not sure I know Jesus. And Mary led Joel to the Lord Jesus. So tell your kids, what I, I want it to happen. I don't want any one of our families not to know how daddy and their granddaddy came to know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, say, well, Dave, I don't know how to do that. Then after the service, come on up and come up and talk to us. We can show you right here today, this morning, how you can know for sure that you've had a conversion experience so that if you were suddenly taken away from your family, your family could be absolutely sure. I want to make something really clear as I close. I'm really trying to connect with unbelievers. I listen to them, and some of them feel that's so arrogant, and how could a preacher ever say something like that at a funeral, for example? I just want you to know, I really believe Jesus rose again from the dead. I really do. And I've seen his power. I've been, I've talked to Leanne on the phone and prayed with her precious, precious mom and dad. They know where Chad is. I was with Chad a year ago when we buried another one of his friends, Donnie. And Chad really did believe Jesus died for him and rose again. We're not grieving with Chris and Chad that we'll never see him again. You've heard over and over again, I want you to get thrilled with this amazing Jesus that can even take a murderer. We're going to have stories in the Bible that are going to tell us even about murderers like David and like Paul who were forgiven by the blood of Jesus and they can be with God forever and ever. What an amazing, redemptive story. So men, your challenge this week, write out your conversion experience, answer those questions. And I want to share this. Teenagers, maybe your dad doesn't know Jesus. And kids, maybe your dad doesn't know Jesus. You write out your testimony 
okay? You write out your testimony and you do what dad's supposed to do. You share with your dad how you came to know Jesus, okay? And I, I know some of you think your dad will get mad. I promise you. If your dad gets really mad, I'll deal with your dad. <laughs> to be honest with you, most of your dads, even the most hostile dads that I know, most of them, when their kid comes, says, hey, dad, do you mind if I just share something that really means a lot to me? i just like to tell you about this. Very few of your dads will say, no, I don't want to hear. Some of them might, but not too many. And we can spread this incredible good news. 